0: welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I am Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. Today I'm talking to James Green uh, uh, about his book Exile Within Exiles, Herbert Daniel, Gay Brazilian Revolutionary, which was published by Duke University Press in 2018. Exile Within Exiles tells the story of Herbert Daniel, a fascinating figure in Brazilian leftist revolutionary politics and social activism from the mid-1960s until his death in 1992. Dr. James Green is Carlos Manuel de Céspedes Professor of Latin American History at Brown University. He has written extensively about Brazilian history and is the author of several books, including We Cannot Remain Silent, Opposition to the Brazilian Military Dictatorship in the United States and Beyond Carnival, Male Homosexuality in 20th Century Brazil. James Green, welcome to New Books and Gender Studies.
1: I'm honored to be here.
0: So your book is relevant, uh, not only to those who are interested in LGBTQ history, but to really to anyone who wants to know a bit more about the organized resistance to the dictatorship in Brazil. Uh, Speaking for myself, I was born and raised in Brazil, but I learned so much about the history of the different factions of the leftist resistance to the military regime, their militancy, direct action, the armed struggle. But I also learned so much about the origins of Brazilians, LGBTQ rights, and environmental movements, and well, about Brazilian history in general. But I also have to say that the book is really cinematic. It's packed with action. We have strikes, protests, kidnappings, bank robbing, Uh, robberies from the guerrilla in the Brazilian countryside to the Parisian gay saunas. Uh, But before we start talking about the book, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, When and how did you become interested in Brazil? And what's your connection to the story you're telling here?
1: So it's a long story. I'll try to do the short version of it. (laughs) I was an anti-war activist in the 1960s against the war in Vietnam, raised a Quaker. And uh, got interested in Latin America is the next kind of area of conflict between the United States and the rest of the world. Uh, started studying Latin America in a collective in Philadelphia, and by accident got in contact with a committee of Brazilians, ex-Brazilians, who were trying to educate the U.S. public about torture and repression in Brazil. And I just met Brazilians. I really liked their energy and their warmth and enthusiasm, and uh, decided I wanted to go to Brazil and get to know the country. So I traveled down the Amazon River through the north and the northeast of Brazil, till I arrived in Rio and Sao Paulo, the two largest cities in the country. I ended up living in Sao Paulo for six years, where I was a founding member of the gay rights movement there, the LGBTQ movement there. And also, I participated in one of the underground organizations that was fighting against the dictatorship. At the end of the, of the military regime, I joined an organization in 78. This was uh, uh, after... Um, the process of democratization started, but there still was a certain amount of repression. So I did that uh, for six years, and then came back to the United States and eventually went back to school to get a PhD in Latin American history at UCLA and write about, teach about Latin America with a focus on Brazil.
0: Wow. And who was Herbich Daniel, and why did you feel that his uh, life story needed to be told?
1: So Herbich Daniel was a very interesting figure. He Came from a lower middle class family. His father was in the military police. His grandfather had been. His brother eventually uh, had a career in, in this area. It's kind of a militarized public police. And uh, he was very smart. He uh, got into the medical school of, uh, in the city of Belo Horizonte at the federal university there uh, very easily. And a while in the medical school in 1965, 66, he started meeting other young people who were organizing a semi clandestine opposition to the military dictatorship which had come to power in 1964. By 1967 he had joined one of the groups that had decided that the only way to overthrow or defeat this government was through armed struggle and kind a of following Cuban model um, that they were inspired by. And so he got involved in preparations for a guerrilla struggle which required accumulating resources and so he and others with robbing banks and uh, doing other actions in order to get the money to do guerrilla training to organize a popular front uh, offensive against the military in power. And in that process, he uh, also discovered he was homosexual. He started having affairs with people. But when he joined this organization, this underground organization, which um, the former president of Brazil, Dilma Josefi was also a member of, he realized that there wasn't space at the time for um, his homosexuality that there was uh, homophobia within the left and the notion of revolutionary masculinity that didn't allow uh, for there to be people who had erotic desires for people of the same gen- gender and so um, he basically repressed his homosexuality for five years and mm-hmm. in in those five years he was actively involved in the revolutionary resistance he helped kidnap the German and then later the Swiss ambassador for uh, demanding the release of 110 political prisoners who had been in, in Brazilian jails. They were released. Uh, and then his organization fell apart. He went underground and in hiding in Brazil for several years and then finally left the country to live in exile in Portugal and France uh, until returning to Brazil in 19, 1981. And he continued his activities. I'll I can talk a little bit about that in our interview a little later so I do not tell the whole story in one answer. Yeah.
0: And yeah, he's a fascinating character. But um, for listeners who might not be familiar with recent Brazilian history, could you explain the context in which this story takes place? Uh, Tell us a bit about the repressive regime that Daniel was fighting against. So in the early
1: 60s, um, there was a government uh, leader, a person who had assumed the presidency after the the president suddenly resigned in 1961, who... um, was trying to support social change in the country, reforms of uh, some land reform, offering more democracy within uh, the armed services, uh, among workers. And his ideas, which were not really revolutionary, but were uh, kind of challenging the status quo, provoked uh, tremendous concern on the part of the United States and the Brazilian military and uh, sectors of the economic elites who conspired together to overthrow the government of this, this person named João Goulart and install what became 21 years of military rule. So the military comes to power in 64, supported by Lyndon Johnson, who even offers to send and sends a naval task force to support the military uh, should they need it or should a civil war break out. Um, and so Herbert Daniel kind of emerges, he comes to, to his political maturity right at this period, right after the military has come to power, right after the student movement is trying to find ways to respond by organizing public demonstrations, thinking about more radical responses to the military in power. Uh, and so he is in, embedded in this moment, in this movement, uh, in the middle of the Cold War, when everything is polarized between uh, an alleged division of the Soviet Union on one hand, the United States on another, and Brazil uh, a lot, the Brazilian military, aligned with the United States, then carries out a wholesale assault on oppositionists. Um, practice of torture becomes state policy. People who are arrested and tortured and some are killed as a result of that. Um, it's a time of the disappearance of activists who are arrested, tortured, and then their bodies are uh, disposed of and their families never find about their whereabouts. It's a period of tremendous repression. At the same time, it's also a moment in which the Brazilian economy takes off. So there's a tremendous amount of prosperity, expansion of the middle class, and so a certain passivity among the population against the military regime because the economy is going well. And this will change after 1973 with the 1974 oil crisis when inflation starts happening. People are getting tired of the uh, ways in which the military is so arbitrary and censoring and repression and torture, and A growing democratic opposition emerges. The military also, at the same time, afraid that it could be a long-term social convulsion if they don't find a way out of power. They're looking to Portugal, which is going through a revolution in 1964. They don't want that to happen. So they slowly engineer a transition to democracy, which takes 10 years. During this period, they guarantee that none of the people who were involved in state-sponsored torture, uh, will be prosecuted for doing that by passing an amnesty law that protects them. Uh, And then there's a slow, gradual transition to democracy. And Daniel accompanies that. He comes back from exile in in, in 81, very critical of a lot of the ideas of the traditional left and very much interested in engaging in new ways to think about social change in the country, including issues of LGBTQ rights, um, environmental questions, the issues of Afro-Brazilians, indigenous peoples, telling the left to go beyond their traditional way of understanding reality and social change to broaden, to include other se- social sectors in Brazilian society, which themselves are already organizing and on the move. So that's reflected in the fact that in I in 78 and others formed the first gay political group in the country, Somos, which means we are, um, in Sao Paulo, as a, as a way of articulating new democratic demands, Uh, in a society that had been coming out of a very repressive period and a very conservative period. So let's Mm -hmm. fast forward to today, in 2020. We have just gone through, in Brazil, the first year of a far-right former captain of the military named Jair Bolsonaro, who was elected um, to the presidency, for several reasons. One of them was strong public uh, rejection of some of the policies of the Workers' Party, a leftist coalition that had been in party, in power uh, for the last 11 years. But also um, to carry out a, an offensive against all the social change that has occurred in Brazil over the last 40 years since the return to democracy, where there's been expanded democracy, uh, democracy expanded participation, uh, visibility of LGBT people, for example, uh, a strong feminist movement criticizing a series of uh, ways in which Brazilian society functions, strong criticism from black activists about um, the attacks on Afro-descendants. And so this this government that is in power now is a response to that, a response to these social changes, with a very conservative political and social and moral agenda, and building a strong alliance with ev- evangelical Christians. It's very similar to the dynamic of the United States under Donald Trump. And so Danielle, even though he passed away in 92, was really asking the questions of how can we respond in a new way to social change, and if he were still alive, he would be one of the people seriously attacked by this new government.
0: I I, I can I can see that. This is going to say something about my upbringing, but I grew up hearing uh, you know about two opposite camps: uh, the conservative, repressive right, and the revolutionary, progressive left. But you, uh, I'm, I was delighted that you complicate that uh, simplistic view, right, by showing the Brazilian militant left's sexism and homophobia. Can you explain that and tell us if that was something that you saw uh, personally on your, uh, during your work in, there in Brazil?
1: Right. So, I mean, so the Brazilian left, like much of the left of, of Latin America, originally is very much inspired by the, the Soviet Union and the, the Russian Revolution. Uh, and then in the 50s, when there was a split between the Soviets and the Chinese, some young ra- radicals gravitate towards China as a kind of model for revolutionary change. The l- rural peasant movements, the land reform that occurred during the, the Chinese Revolution. And then after 1959, with the Cuban Revolution, there's tremendous inspiration about the fact that a small island country so close to the United States was able to stand up to the dominant political power in the region, the U.S. government. And so the Cuban Revolution seemed to be, for many people, the pathway forward for social justice, for income equality, for eliminating exploitation and oppression. We know today that it's much more complicated than that, that there are many, many problems with the, with the Cuban Revolution. But at the time, it was the, it was the counterpoint to U.S. influence in the region. Um, and so a whole generation throughout Latin America of youth saw the Cuban Revolution as the pathway forward for radical social change in Latin America. Um, and so people who join these movements, students, mostly men, but certainly women, about 20 to 30 percent of these, these movements were composed of women, tended to follow the models that they learned uh, from the Cuban Revolution or from the traditional practice of the left in Latin America, or ideas that were just Dominant in society about rigid gender roles between the way men should act and be and the way women should act and be, a uh, heteronormativity uh, that propose, that imposed uh, uh, compulsory heter- heterosexuality on people with very little toleration for differences and um, they also em- embraced a very traditional Marxist idea that class was the most important contradiction in society and so the working class would be the motor force of the revolution um, or perhaps peasants and workers and this did not allow people to understand that there are other ways in which people are are oppressed in a society they're not just perhaps exploited um, through their wage labor but they also suffer other kinds of, of stigmatizations or marginalizations or oppressions in a society whether it's endemic racism built on the legacy of slavery whether it's gender inequality and sexism, which is embedded in in Western or society in general uh, uh, throughout the ages, or whether it's um, very traditional conservative ideas about sexuality, many of which are basically a repetition of the ideas of the Catholic Church. So you have these students who are becoming revolutionaries, and there's a lot of youthful fantasy around that, and they're trying to model themselves after people like Che Guevara, who they see as very masculine and very virile fighter who sacrifices life for the cause and they reproduce those 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 models uh, in which uh, although discursively women are supposed to be equal to men these mi- mostly middle class men who are or young young men in these organizations reproduce all of the of the roles that they they saw in their families where women tend to do domestic work and are subservient to men um, and that, that is reproduced in in, a, in the left. And it really re- it, re- it requires autonomous groups of gays and lesbians or feminists or of black activists to stand up and say, wait, if we're revolutionary, we need to question everything. And there are seri- a series of things that people are strongly criticizing about Brazilian society or Latin American society. But there are other things that people are just reproducing and, re- and re- re- repeating what is the norm. And let's interrogate those, those issues, the issues of gender inequality. Of of sexual marginalization, uh, of racism that are very very uh, deeply embedded in Brazilian society and culture, and so that was the that was the challenge of these new social movements uh, that emerged in the process of democratization in the seventies, whether it was feminist movement or a black consciousness movement or what now is called the LGBTQ movement in Brazil, uh, and it required the left to, uh, to to rethink a lot of things and. Many people were able to do that and some people were not. I would say on the whole today, Brazilian society has changed significantly on the left. And ironically, because the right, Bolsonaro among others, um, has uh, identified all of these social movements for LGBTQ rights and for women's rights and for black consciousness uh, and the rights of black people in Brazil as being things of the left, whether or not leftists want to or not, They're put in the same um, camp as these social movements. Um, And Bolsonaro cares cares a lot about um, trying to eliminate, for example, just to give one of many examples, um, the possibility of the government through the Ministry of Culture, now the Secretary of Culture, of financing any films that have a positive uh, portrayal of of homosexuality. Uh, So, for example, I'm working with a with a director about the pasta and a producer about, uh, making my book into a movie. Uh, traditionally all filmmakers in Brazil would go to an entity, uh, supported by the U S government, uh, by the Brazilian government to, um, get, um, funding, tax exempt funding for a film project. It's kind of sponsored through the state and through state laws. Well, the government has said nothing about homosexuality will be funded by, uh, this process. And so I won't be able to rely on these sources to, to, to finance making the film. i have to, to go to other, other uh, income revenue sources to be able to uh, find the, the resources to, to, to do the film if we're, if we're able to do that. And that's having to do with kind of a censorship by the right now against all positive images of
0: homosexuality in Brazil. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a dark time there right now. And in, in in a way, right, there's so many parallels from uh, between now and uh, the story you're telling in your book. And what's worse is that
1: the current government, Bolsonaro, actually defends the, the dictatorship and says And one of the things he said is that it was a mistake just to torture. They should have killed many more leftists. Even at one point said 15,000. Um, he has made other comments criticizing the former center-right president, Fernando Cardoso, who... He also said it was a mistake that he wasn't also killed. Um, so he defends the torture of political prisoners, or he says that people lied and were never tortured. Um, and uh, he defends the military takeover uh, and the 21 years of military rule. It's a very, very bad, uh, dark time in Brazil. Um, and Daniel, growing up in the 60s, faced a similarly difficult time. Uh, and. In the context of where he was operating, he saw the only path forward as a real struggle. I think no one is talking about that today as an alternative. I think people are much more interested in building a, a mass democratic movement uh, against the current government um, and hopefully defeating it in three years when there are elections.
0: Yeah, that's why it's uh, uh, important that people uh, write and make movies and tell this story because we're in a, a difficult period of revisionism. People saying, uh, I can't believe when I go back to Brazil. And people say that, well, it wasn't that bad, right? Uh, and like, as you said, denying that, that th- this type of violence actually existed in the part it of is, the government. It's very
1: complicated because during period a part of the time of the military regime, there was an economic expansion, which generally favored upper-middle-class people, not working-class people. Their wages stagnated during this period, but so the middle class expanded, and they were able to buy cars and apartments for a, a short period of time. And when you have a repressive government in power, uh, the streets are clean. You know, the the repressive the apparatus will carry out brutal methods to, uh, to fight crime, to limit people's rights, to limit their right to be on the streets, to say what they think. And some people see this as a positive, nostalgic romanticization of the past. Uh, when those who lived through it know uh, if you were a critical thinking person, if you were a aware person, if you were able to circumvent the censorship and understand what was going on, then it was not a very pleasant time. And, and, and how can anyone defend the state having the policy of of arresting and torturing its citizens, this is just totally unacceptable in any society. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, this is a it's a it's a serious problem, as you say, of revisionism of people, not um, remaking what they understand to be the history of the country, or not really knowing the history of the country. And one of the things that I I wanted to do when I chose to write this book, I'd never written a biography before. It was a real challenge to even you know, know how to do that. But I really wanted to tell the story of. A person who I considered to be extraordinary, really extraordinary, and his story had been either unknown or had been forgotten, and I wanted to bring his biography to to Brazilians of a new generation to know how this person managed in every single moment of his adulthood since he became a student at the university, that he threw himself actively into into The issues at hand. So when he comes back from exile, from from living in Portugal and then in France, he becomes very um, involved in the new democratic process of electing people to Congress. He supports a former guerrilla who was elected to the State Assembly and becomes a part of his administrative staff in the State Assembly of Rio de Janeiro. And then in uh, 1986, he himself runs for the State Assembly. He doesn't get elected, but it's a very open, it's the first really open campaign that is visible where a homosexual is running for a public office and has a certain amount of support. He doesn't get enough votes to be elected into the, to the, to the state assembly, uh, and then soon thereafter he's invited to work in an AIDS foundation that had been established in Rio. Uh, thereafter discovers he's HIV positive, that he actually has manifestations of AIDS, And then for the last three years of his life, he plunges passionately into the defense of people living with HIV and AIDS, re-conceptualizing how to respond to it, creating new language and new approaches to responding to the disease, and fighting to the bitter bitter end until he's on the verge of dying as he kind of active in this movement. And he becomes internationally renowned for that um, because of his new approach to thinking about how to fight the virus by supporting people who are living with the virus, and it's a very, very important way of understanding um, the need to advocate in favor of people who have illnesses or have viruses and need support uh, to give them the moral support, the emotional support to uh, resist um, this infection and as we all know, if one doesn't have the kind of fortitude and the feeling that they can make and win then it's much easier for um, a disease to to, to overcome and to succumb to them.
0: Yes, and in many ways, I feel that he was uh, reading about him, that he was sort of ahead of his time. But there's something that you um, discuss here that I found fascinating, is this idea that somehow his homosexuality was simultaneously incompatible with his revolutionary activities, but also somehow prepared him from it. For it, in the sense that you're making a connection between the secrecy that was required uh, by the political activism and the secrecy of his sexuality, can you Re- talk about that a no, little? It's
1: bit? A, it's a really interesting thing because actually most of his friends were arrested and imprisoned for various reasons. They, they, someone was arrested and mentioned a, a location where someone was staying, and then the police came to that site and arrested the person. Uh, he never got arrested. He was in jail, I think, for two days in May of 1968 during a student sit-in at the, the medical school in Belo Horizonte. That was it, and he has no really record there. He just there's, a, there's an indication that he was incarcerated with another 300 students for one day for a sit-in. And one of the ways I think that he managed to uh, survive when he was underground was the same way that many gay men before the emergence of lesbians, before the emergence of a, of a very powerful movement, um, had to kind of keep very discreet their sexual orientation, their desires. They had to create a series of subterfuges to not reveal themselves so they wouldn't be subjected to uh, marginality, marginalization, discrimination, comment. Um, kind of being very aware who you, to whom you reveal what you're feeling. And this is very common among young people who realize that they're either gay or lesbian and start trying to figure out, well, how do I tell people about this? Who do I tell? Who do I keep this secret from? Who do I reveal it to? So people underground who lived in Rio or Sao Paulo or who were operating in an urban environment were constantly needing to negotiate people they ran into, giving fake information about themselves, false names, false biographies, and doing it in a way that wouldn't alert that person to think, hmm, there's something suspicious here. Maybe this person is not whom they say they are. Maybe this is a person who's actually in an underground revolutionary organization, and I need to call the police and turn them over. So his own negotiation with what was inside of him, what was his feeling, what was his personal story, his personal narrative, constantly deciding when and how he would reveal that information, I think gave him a lot of skills in uh, performing to, to, to a certain extent, who he was to people he would run into as he rented a room in a boarding house or tried to find a way to get fake ID or some other way to survive when he was underground. And he, at, the, at one point, was one of the three leaders of one of the revolutionary groups in the, in the National Command and was on wanted posters all over the country. So he, he was visible, physically visible. His picture was out there. And so that made it even harder for him. And I think his skills at keeping uh, the secrets of his sexuality um, also, I think, helped him survive.
0: Yeah. So tell us a bit about your, I'm, I'm really curious about your research uh, process. I'd like to know a little bit uh, about the challenges of uncovering the history of someone who spent so much time uh, hiding, right? Trying not to be found. And, um, uh, I would, uh, how and where did you find the sources that allowed you to paint such a vivid picture, not only of your protagonist, but of, uh, also of such a complex moment in Brazilian history? So um,
1: I was actually working on another project, an article, um, of the story of, a gay, of two revolutionaries who were in prison and started having a sexual relationship. And it really annoyed the other political prisoners and someone threatened to do something about that, whether it was to actually kill this guy or just give him violence or just be a macho and say, I'm going to hurt you. And someone told me this story. And I just, this story was amazing to me. I, I, I was trying to track down information about this couple who were in prison in Sao Paulo. Um, and in doing that, I ran into, um, I knew, I had known about Herbert Daniel when I lived in Brazil because he was re- returning from exile and was living in Rio and had written an open letter criticizing the fact that the left had not supported his case to return to Brazil. He was not allowed to return with an amnesty law in 79 because he had been involved in these kidnappings in which a um, bodyguard had been killed. He did not kill the person, but because he was involved in the action, he had been condemned to, to a lifetime in prison. So he couldn't return, and he was trying to fight to get the movement in Brazil that was fighting for the return of people to support his cause. So I knew about him. Uh, and then I ran across his... Um, memoir um, that he wrote while he was in exile in Paris working in a gay sauna and it's called Passagem para Proximo Sonia, which means A Ticket to the Next Dream and it was a, it was a very um, colorfully written baroquely uh, abstractly written story of his life that um, was written while dictatorship was still in power and many of his friends were either in prison or in exile some were even still underground. So he wrote the story directly and indirectly. He did not reveal everything. He would use pseudonyms for people. He told stories in certain, in certain ways obtusely. And so this was a very important source. And I, I, I read it. I said, well, it would be so great to write a biography of this guy. I don't know how to write a biography, but it would be so wonderful. Really nice to have one. This is a, a wonderful source. And I just thought about that, but thought, well, I don't know how to do that. And I don't know how I would even start. And then I was talking to a a colleague of mine in Brazil, uh, a woman who had written a book about exile, and had written about Daniel in exile in in France. And um, she said, well, you should talk to his mother. And I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, his mother lives in Belo Horizonte. And she gave me her telephone number. And I literally, the next opportunity, I called her when I was in Brazil and said, Dona Janique, can I, I'm wanting to write a book about your son. Can I visit you? And she said, yes. And so I jumped on a plane from Rio to, to, to the next day and went to her house and interviewed her for three hours. And it was just amazing. Just, the stories, the details she told me about his early life were just fabulous. And in the process, she mentioned the name of his best friend in high school and in the first years of the medical school. And I tracked this woman down through the, the medical school and met her in a coffee shop. And she fortunately said yes to an interview. And she gave me other details about how they met and what their life was like. And so I, I said, well, now I have his early life. I can build the information through a network with the family and some colleagues. Maybe these people. And uh, I have a notion of his adolescence before he joined the university. And then I started systematically tracking down all the surviving members of, of the organizations to which he belonged or the political party that he joined when he came back from exile, people who lived with him in exile, uh, and just finding documents wherever I could find them. very little in the political uh, in the political police files because he had never been arrested, therefore he never was interrogated and tortured and had to reveal information, false or not about his past. but other people mentioned him, but mostly just mentioning his name as a member of a group without giving me any details. So I had to rely on on his memoirs and his writings and about seventy interviews I did with people who knew him. And very fortunately, his mother had a few letters that he um, wrote to her when he was in exile, not that many, and a very good friend of his who had been in the Revolutionary Movement with him. When she got out of jail and Herbert Daniel was in exile, they started exchanging letters. And she kept all of her letters that she wrote and the letters she received. And they're wonderful because they're written without an audience of mind. It's just to the other person telling what's happened. A lot of wonderful details I was able to piece together about his life um, because of, of, of those letters that, that were, were lent to me to use. Um, so it's not a complete biography. There are lots of holes. There are lots of spaces that I couldn't fill in the cracks or fill in the, you know, in, the, in the absences, the silences. It's an incomplete biography. But it seems from the people who have read it who knew him that I was successful. And I was very, very lucky. The last person I interviewed for the book was Dilma Josefi, the former president of Brazil, who I met in the presidential palace after she had been impeached and was waiting for the trial in the Senate. She was fascinated that I had um, working on this biography, so she granted me an interview and uh, that was very, very important because she gave me some wonderful details about his life that I had not been able to piece together Now a lot of people have died a lot of people this is forty fifty six years six, forty or fifty years ago, and so people's memories are complicated and I have contradictory stories for certain incidents that took place, and it's not clear whether it was this way or that way. But that's part of the, the, the problem of, of an historian is figuring out how to evaluate sources and what to do with contradictory information you find in the archives.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed reading the parts where you talk to Juma because, um, well, when we think about her now, is is such a Terrible circumstance in our country, but reading about her past and I don't know, it was just somehow comforting. I guess Um, they they were very good
1: friends for a period of time. They shared Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they shared an apartment in Rio, a clandestine apartment in Rio, and she really loved him. And it was very strange because I was at an event uh, with historians defending her. I was asked to be on a a panel, and I was sitting next to her, and was the second to the, the last person to speak before she spoke. And I'm not even sure what I said, but she was just fascinated by this American who was speaking about <laughs> these things and you know, who was I. And then and I, as I told her about the fact that I was writing a biography, she just was dumbfounded and she basically didn't want to talk to anyone else. In this, this, <laughs> there were like 200 people there and wanted just to talk to me. And so fortunately, she invited mm-hmm. me back to, to the presidential palace and I went back for what was supposed to be a 45 minute meeting and it ended up being a two and a half hour conversation. And based on that, we became friends. It was really, really nice because she really, in some way, I think maybe was in a very vulnerable moment. And through mm-hmm. me, I could give her an insight into the past. She read the manuscript in English as I was working on it. And I, I integrated her interview into the final draft of the, of the book.
0: Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Daniel's process of re- reinventing himself and. Living his sexuality in exile, uh, I found it really interesting. Is how uh, people's involvement with the militancy and and their activism is reinvented because we we don't uh, hear a lot the stories of the folks. You know, what happens after the right. movement ends? Right. We mostly hear about the stories that end and uh, sometimes quite literally with a bang, right? The, the great leaders that, get, uh, that are assassinated or something. But this idea of the life afterwards and this reinvention.
1: Right. And in that regard, there, there are other people, I think, who very successfully reinvented themselves when they realized that the revolutionary uh, trajectory they had taken was kind of dead-ended. Um, but I think very few as d- dramatically as Danielle. So um, what, when he, so he had been having sex with men uh, until sometime in 1968, and then stopped doing that for, while he was underground until 72, 73. Uh, in that time, he met this person who was married, a man named Claudio Mesquita, um, who actually was asked to hide him, and he and his wife. Uh, And Daniel shared an apartment, and um, it was kind of a cover for him while he was still underground and trying to survive in Brazil. And Claudio, uh, at the time, confessed to him that he was bisexual, that he had had gay relations, but he was married the second time, that he was confused about his sexuality. And they became very good friends, not sexual partners, but very close friends. And then at some point in 1973 during Carnival, Daniel had reorganized... um, a group of people to try to resist the dictatorship. And that group got dismantled. Someone was discovered and they gave names of other people. And so he and, and Claudio had to flee the city and they went to live in a small town in Amina uh, I where they got incredibly bored with small town life and didn't know what to do. And so they decided to open up a discotheque, which is kind of mind boggling in the middle of the repression when he's the most wanted person in his organization. They, set up a discotheque and, and try to make it successful. It's not very financially successful, but they have a lot of fun for the six months and they're, they're doing that. Um, and then uh, people find out that he's still in the country and uh, people who are exiled and very worried about that, so they send money and passports to get him out of the country. And he takes Claudio with them. And so Claudio and he become inseparable. Danielle is having affairs with other people at the time. I don't have much details about that because, again, these are things that we just, I don't have access to that information. Claudio has passed away. Um, and the sources that I've had give me very contradictory information, so it's hard to really know what happened. Um, But in Europe, in Portugal, they decide to go to Portugal to participate in the revolution that's going on there. Uh, One day, you know, Claudio says, look, you know, we love each other. Why don't we become lovers? And so they start having an affair and they become lifetime partners. They're together for about 20 years. So, when Daniel, Daniel is in Portugal and the Portuguese revolution is very exciting for a first year. And then the second year, it kind of um, confronts a conservative backlash in the country and, and, and looks really bad. Their apartment is, is raided um, by the police looking for arms, which they're not involved in anything that would have entailed that. But they freak out. and They said, no, let's, let's get out of Portugal. This looks like it's going to be another bad situation. So they go to Paris. And in Paris, which is at the time, 1975, 76, 77, is the center of European-Brazilian exiles and Latin American exiles. Uh, and they're meeting and they're trying to rethink what they're going to do and how they're going to come back and how they're going to resist the dictatorship and endless meetings and discussions and debates between different organizations that have declined in numbers and have gone through crises and internal fights. Daniel's really sick of all this. And he says, you know, I just can't stomach going to another political meeting. I'm just going to live my life, and he uh, doesn't speak great French, and he manages to get a job working as a kind of a, an attendant in a, in a, in a gay sauna uh, in, in, in Paris. And uh, working there at night, he works on in a notebook on his memoir, writing it, um, and living a very a kind of domestic life with with uh, with Claudio, his lover, and um, and a, a small group of friends in, in Paris really tired of the way in which the left is repeating its broken record without rethinking what it needs to do. Um, At some point, the artist group of the committee fighting for the return of political exiles, which is called the Brazilian Amnesty Commission, decides that they would like to have a debate about homosexuality. And they invite Daniel to organize this debate in uh, a house called the Casa do Brasil, which is connected to uh, the French universities. It's owned by the Brazilian government. It's kind of student housing and a cultural center. And so there's the there's a whole debate about whether the debate should happen, and who should you know who should sponsor it, or should it be sponsored by anyone? And the debate ends up happening. And Daniel, in this moment, kind of articulates his critique of the way in which the left has been homophobic, and offers a very um, sophisticated. Um, notion of what is homosexuality and queerness, and he doesn't use that term or that idea. Um, so that's this kind of intervention politically. But the rest of the time, he's, he's just kind of living in Paris and living his life in writing and preparing to return to Brazil. Cláudia is able to go back before him, and Daniel is desperately trying to get back, but he can't manage to get the, the legal uh, papers necessary to return without being thrown right into jail. And he doesn't want to come back until he has uh, assurances that he won't be put in jail. And when he comes back, he, he jumps into politics again, but with a different way of thinking about it. And that's, I think, strongly influenced by the changes that are happening in Europe after 68, with the emergence of a green movement, a very strong feminist movement. And he brings new ideas and he brings a new perspective to working in Brazil. And so the electoral campaign that he organizes in 1982 talks about environment, talks about homosexuality, talks about uh, developing a city that is much more humane and much more people-friendly, talking about public transportation in a better way. And so I think he there, in that moment, is realizing that if he's going to live in Brazil, we have to really change not just the political system, but also the way we think about the environment and gender relations and racial relations and how people live and treat each other. And, that's, and that's, what, that's what he becomes that. He becomes disillusioned with the Workers' Party, which is, um, which is the party that he had been working with um, after he got back in 1982, and will help found the Green Party. He um, will even in 1989, for a brief period of time, be the candidate of the Green Party in the first presidential election since 1960. Uh, but he's, he's not sick enough, he's not well enough to really sustain that because he already has HIV. AIDS, and um, kind of relinquishes that nomination to another person, um, and then dives into fighting for people with HIV-AIDS until his death. So he really is rethinking how the left should be in Brazil, and is one of the pioneers in restructuring and rethinking everything. I mean, if if we look today at Brazilian politics, there's a, a person named Jean Willis who. Was elected to Congress yeah. um, three times. He was the most vocal opponent of Bolsonaro in Congress for the last five years and um, received death threats, serious death threats. And after the election of Bolsonaro, he was reelected for a third term. But when Bolsonaro was also elected um, in the second round of the elections of 2018, and Jean continued to get death threats, he decided to leave the country. And so he's now outside of Brazil, um, trying to figure out what he's going to do next with his life, uh, continuing to resist the regime, but, but um, from this different position. And, and in a lot of ways, Jean Willis, uh, who wrote the um, introduction to the Portuguese language version of my book, um, represents the legacy of Robert Daniel, you know, a new generation, a different kind of situation, but carrying out the same uh, interests and concerns about how to integrate all these different questions into one. Um, major fight one front because they're all interconnected
0: yeah i was reading your book and i uh, kept thinking how uh, ahead of his time uh, daniel was and but i couldn't decide if he was ahead of his time or if we are going backwards now i think it's a bit of both right
1: well i mean he was ahead of his times, and i think brazil started to catch up with him and make <laughs> tremendous changes in the last 20 years but now uh there's a reaction to that you know there are yes. many people religious and others who don't like the idea of equal rights for gays and lesbians. They don't like that people might conceive of their sexuality or their gender performance differently than what has been the traditional normative way people are supposed to act and be. And um, they don't like a series of ideas that um, loosely are the agenda of the left, and so they're carrying out this movement to overturn everything possible, just as in 1964 when the military came to power they started systematically overturning all of the progressive changes that people were trying to enact in the period before
0: 1964. Mm-hmm. So you conclude, uh, you, one of the things that you say here is that uh, while Herbic Danielle was unique or unusual as a personality character, his experience also captured, and I'm quoting you, the spirit of a generation in all of its contradictions and complexities. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so I mean, in a lot
1: of ways, Danielle is part of what people would call the generation of 1968, the people who become political, political in, the, in the late 60s, Uh, It's part of a worldwide phenomenon of people who are challenging authoritarian regimes or pushing for more democracy. In the case of Brazil, which is under a dictatorship that leads some, not the majority, but some youth to uh, carry out this very radical option to fight the military regime through armed struggle. And it, it really represents the ethos of a generation of people who saw the possibility of revolution, of radical social change, were inspired by international movements that were involved in the same kind of social change and plunged their entire lives into this project, just dedicating everything for this possibility of a revolution. They're, they're defeated. There's a defeat of this, this possibility throughout the world. 68 is actually a year of rebellion than a year of defeat. Uh, the armed struggle by 72-73 is clearly going to go nowhere, and most of the organizations have been smashed by the, by the government. Um, and so he, like many people, spent the early '70s, in the mid '70s, trying to figure out, well, what we need, what do we need to do? What's what's the new way to go? What's the new way we can engage in politics? And there emerges what I call the generations of '77, which is actually the topic of my next book, which is looking at those people, those youth who come to age in the period between 1974 and 1980, and I use '77 as the kind of the term to to signify this generation, who are very much against the dictatorship, and in that regard are very similar to the traditional leftists of '68, but are also interested in new questions—questions questions about sexuality, the environment, uh, women's rights, uh, racial equality—and so they bring this new debate into the discussion about how do we overthrow the dictatorship, how do we defeat the military in power, and Daniel, well, he's actually abroad in 1977. He's going through the same transformation. I happened to land in Brazil in 1976 and was an active member of this generation in being a part of the gay move movement and also being a part of the, of the movement against the dictatorship. And it's not an easy, it's not an easy transition to make. Um, uh, people, there's conflict and there's sectors of the left which are very conservative about these new ideas and trying to figure out how to integrate these ideas into a notion of what is a broad democracy. Um, So Daniel, in a way, represents the best and the most passionate of 68. He represents that generation, even though he's marginalized as a part of that generation. And um, similarly, in 77, in his case, in exile in Paris, but people living in similar uh, circumstances in Brazil are part of a new generation with new ideas confronting old, more conservative ways of understanding social change and what needs to be done to have a real broad democracy. And so Danielle represents two generations actually, I would say, but he's also at the margins of those generations because of his positionality as an openly gay man, really questioning um, profoundly uh, the ways in which that generation or those two generations understand their identity. Mm -hmm.
0: So I, because this is a podcast for and by people who like books, I like to uh, conclude by asking my uh, uh, interviewees uh, questions, uh, what I call my book club questions. The first one is if there was any particular book that inspired or informed Exile Within Exiles.
1: Wow, I've never thought about that. Um,
0: or something that you could recommend yeah, for folks so, who I mean, are interested.
1: It's, it's interesting because I really had not run a lot of, I had read some biographies. Someone said when I said I was going to do this book, they said, well, you need to read 100 biographies. And I said, I'm not <laughs> going to read 100 biographies. I said, then I'll end up copying everyone else. I said, I have to figure this out myself. And in fact, originally, I was going to write the book backwards. I was going to start with his death. Each chapter was going to like take me back in time. And the, the last chapter would be his early childhood. And I tried writing that. My publisher in Brazil said, I said I have a wonderful new idea of writing. She said, you know, some, and I don't think anyone's done it this way before. And she said, you know, sometimes new ideas that are really wonderful don't get done because they're not good ideas. <laughs> and she was right. I, I don't, at least I couldn't figure out how to write it in a way that my reader would be able to understand it. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is going to sound weird, but a long time ago I read the, the, the biography of, of Leon Trotsky. And I really enjoyed that because I think that, and then that book and another book, which is similar in a certain way, although very different, is Emma Goldman, the early 20th century anarchist. She wrote a book called Living My Life. And I think both Trotsky in a very different way and Emma Goldman in her way and Herbert Danielle in his way Lived passionately their lives. They were very political, and they lived their politics in the day-to-day uh, from, from beginning to end. And so I think those were probably inspirations of things I read 20 or 30 years ago uh, about how to tackle the complexities of doing a biography. Um, so yeah, that's my answer.
0: Uh. Ah. and while you were researching and writing your book, was there anything you came across, any story, subject, character that you wish someone else would write that you just did? It wouldn't fit on your project, but you wish someone else would continue. Yeah, uh, that, uh, God, I haven't thought about
1: that either. That, it's always <laughs> the case when uh, when you're younger. I, I started. I went back to graduate school when I was forty, so I wasn't really young. But but when I when I would do research, I would find all these wonderful things that, oh, this is going to make a great book or I have to save this material for my next project. And now I'm like looking for people to do that work. You know, I say like, (laughs) oh, I'm looking for my graduate students to do the books I know I'm never going to write. uh, And I'm really excited that they're going to write them. Um, Well, one thing is I've been working for years trying to find a woman to write the history of lesbians in Brazil. And there's not a really good book about that. And I think Mm -hmm. I have uh, accepted into the graduate program at Brown this next year a young woman who will do that. I'm excited about working with her. And there's another woman who's interested in rethinking uh, the history of the women's movement in Brazil. So I'm going to have two students, two young women students, who are thinking about these questions that I've been thinking about for years. And so I'm very excited to work with them and nurture them as they write their dissertation and turn their dissertation into a book and become a young, new generation of, of historians of Brazil uh, working on topics that are important to me.
0: Yes, that's great, and I, I would love to read those. I was going to conclude by asking about your next project. You started talking about it, right? The the seventy seven generation. But wh- what format would that take? Uh, so, is it
1: so going to? I have two new projects that I'm working okay. on simultaneously. Um, one is Generation Seventy Seven, which is going to be. It's actually going to be mini biographies of seven people. It's going to be uh, telling their story in seven different chapters, who represent different kinds of people involved in the. In the youth movement, the politicized youth movement against the dictatorship in São Paulo. So one is a student activist whose father was disappeared. Another is a woman who went to the university in '77, went to leaflet in a working class neighborhood and was arrested and tortured for two weeks. Another was a black activist who was one of the founders of the of the um, black consciousness movement in São Paulo. Has passed away. Uh, another is was a young student activist uh, at the University of São Paulo who later became the spokesperson for the Lula government in the first administration, and now is a very prominent political scientist. And another is a lesbian activist who continues to be involved in the lesbian movement today. Uh, and So what I'm trying to do is to give just vignettes or stories of seven people and how they're inf- confronting the changes that are going on in the, in the mid to late 70s and the process of democratization. And through their live stories, tell the story of these political conflicts that are occurring the traditional lefts and these new social movements that are emerging. So that's my first book, Generation 77. And the, the last book I intend to write in my career, because I'm starting to imagine what it's like to be retired, uh, is a book that um, is about, it's called The Crossroads of Sin and the Collision of Cultures, Pleasure, Commerce, and Popular Entertainment in Rio de Janeiro, 1860 to 1920. Very long title, 1930, a long title. But what it's basically about is about downtown Rio and the ways in which different social classes and people within that society interacted um, in the downtown theater district, which was the location of, of gay cruising in the 19th century around the park, which is called today Praça Cidadanches, and is surrounded by theaters. So I'm interested in looking at women actresses, actresses, um, prostitutes, female prostitutes, especially Jewish prostitutes who were very common in Rio at the time. Uh, how petty commerce interacts with other people in this area of the city and see how that changes over time so it'll be kind of a social cultural urban history of Rio de Janeiro in a period that I find fascinating and beyond that I'm working on a whole bunch of other kind of anthologies and other projects but those are the two Mm -hmm. last major books that I intend to write and then I'm going to give it a rest and I also then want to write a autobiography
0: I can't wait to read all of it Uh, (laughs) Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me.
1: It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Net uh, New Books Network. I just spoke to James Green about his book, Exile Within Exiles, Herbert Daniel. Gay Brazilian Revolutionary, which was published by Duke University Press in 2018. I would also like to thank the Department of Journalism and Strategic Media here at the University of Memphis, and especially Dr. Robbie Bird, for letting me use their podcasting studio to record this. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.